the longer you stay, the greater the discount, the more they save. So if you want to accelerate your path to financial independence, you should job hop every three to five years. And five years is a very respectable time to stay at any one firm. Welcome to The Fi Show, where you get a behind-the-scenes look into financial independence. Here's your host, Cody and Justin. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of The Financial Independence Show, where today we have on Sam Dojan, better known as Financial Samurai, author of Buy This, Not That. But before we get into his story, let me check in my co-host, Justin. What is going on, man? Hey, Cody. Yeah, this past weekend or kind of that extended weekend was like that Thursday to Monday was pretty packed. Thursday, Leslie hooked us up with a surprise where I showed up. It was actually blindfolded at one point. I had no idea what was going on. And there was about 30 of us that went to a Rufus the Soul concert. We had two giant limos take us there. Um, it was an awesome time. We ended up staying out way too late. So, you know, getting home after four o'clock in the morning made for a rough Friday. But then we spent a couple days house-sitting for her brother, who's got an awesome little French bulldog. Shout out to Pearl. And uh, then we got out on the uh, the water with my friend Ron, took his bass boat out, did a little fishing, got, uh, which was a great day out on the lake. And then Sunday, I had my first work trip in a long time. So, you know, with COVID and everything, I really haven't been traveling much for work, but flew out to Charlotte, which was my first time to kind of get to check that place out. A lot of great food out there. And yeah, just got back today. And so uh, that was kind of my extended weekend. How about you, Cody? Sounds like a lot of fun. I also had an eventful weekend. I did some apple picking, so that's always fun. We got to drink some local beers and pick a bunch of apples, and we're going to do like an apple cook-off next weekend at Lauren's family's house, and everyone's going to kind of make their own dish, and we'll all rate them and see who wins the apple cooking competition. Also, in random news, we adopted a cat. (laughs) So (laughs) there was this stray cat that was living, kind of just living around Lauren's dad's house. And they ended up like bringing it into their garage. And then it started getting too cold in the garage. They brought it into the house. And yeah, this thing just seems like someone left it. It's litter trained. It's super friendly. It's awesome. We named it Fang after Hagrid's dog from Harry Potter. And we've had him for a couple of days now, and he seems like an awesome little guy. We just didn't want to see him, you know, living in a basement for the rest of his life. And we'll see how this all plays out. We were not planning on getting a pet, and we have a bunch of travel queued up. But hopefully we're going to lean on friends and family to take care of him. But yeah, that's kind of a random event that unfolded that I, I couldn't have expected. But he's super cute. Hopefully he's part of the family for a while. But Justin, that's enough about us and our personal lives. Let's get into today's episode with the Financial Samurai. I followed Sam, the financial samurai, since the beginning, since I got into the financial independence space back in 2018. And he is one of the most analytical people I have ever met. Like he is just a numbers guy through and through. And actually something that I discovered in research for this episode that we talked about today, he actually let Mr. Money Mustache guest post on his blog. And that was kind of Mr. Money Mustache's foray into the personal finance space, which is just crazy. And is a testament to how long Sam has been around, how long the financial samurai has been a prominent brand in this space. So in this episode, we have a chance to kind of dig into Sam's backstory. He doesn't share that too, too often, but with his latest book, Buy This, Not That, he kind of uncovers his backstory, a lot of his ideology, a lot of how he was able to hit financial independence and accumulate a massive net worth at a pretty young age. The part that jumps out to me, Cody, is definitely that analytical piece. And it's what made me a big fan of Sam's also. Same for me, like since kind of the beginning, you know, reading some of his posts that got into talking about asset allocations and and being more comfortable being stock heavy, especially in the kind of retirement that we foresee where it's, you know, these much longer periods of time 
And we have a lot more room for risk as younger people who could just go back to work if we really had to, that sort of thing. So I've always really respected the amount of research that goes into Sam's articles. And he also doesn't shy away from making some kind of bold claims that not everyone's going to agree with, whether it be, you know, he talked about how long he feels like everyone should work at a minimum or whether it be some of his investing styles. But he practices what he preaches. Like he talks a lot about that, how everything he writes about, he likes to make sure it's something that he has actually done himself. And he's really put the effort in to get data to back up what he's saying. So even if you don't agree with him, he's not out there just lazily throwing around ideas or saying, you know, you should do something that he's never tried himself. If you're interested in figuring out where to get Sam's book or just want to get some links to some of the things we talked about in the show, or maybe you know someone who would really enjoy Sam's content and would like to link out the episode to them, you can find all that over at thefyshow.com slash samurai. That's thefyshow.com slash S-A-M-U-R-A-I. Take it away, Sam. I think it all started when my dad took me out for lunch or family and I wanted to order a beverage. It was like a Coke or something. And he said, no, 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 you can't order that. Better order a glass of water with a slice of lemon instead. It's better for you and it's free. So that is something that stuck with me ever since middle school about trying to discover what is value of things and not to waste money. Another lesson I had is never fail due to a lack of effort because effort requires no skill. And so the idea behind that is to say, look, you can fail because someone else is smarter than you, better looking, better connected or whatever. But if you fail because you didn't give it your best, you're always going to look back with regret not having tried your best. And then finally, I worked in equities in finance for 13 years. And so I saw a lot of booms and busts. I joined Goldman Sachs in 1999. Uh, the dot-com bubble busted in March 2000. And then I saw all these fortunes just disappear within a matter of months. And so ever since that time, I decided to diversify and buy hard assets. So hard assets mainly in real estate because already the equities market, my career and my pay was already tied to the stock market. So I needed to diversify my career and my net worth. And I just didn't want to see things just go poof overnight in a matter of months as well. And as someone who like today, you know, such a prolific writer, have such a great audience with your platform of Financial Samurai and, you know, now the book, I'm kind of curious, like thinking about as you're going up through high school, getting ready to go to college, what did you see your life being like? What did you see a world in finance? Did you stumble into that? Mm. Like, how did you envision your life would be? Because to me, that's always fun. Like we know where you're at now, but kind of dig into where do you think you would be? Well, my parents worked for the US Foreign Service. So I guess like all children or many children, I thought maybe I could follow my parents' footsteps. But I discovered that the US Foreign Service exam has like a one or 2% acceptance rate. I didn't know how difficult it was. It was like a written exam, an oral exam over a course of multiple days. And I thought to myself, there's like no way I'm going to be able to pass that. So forget about that. And then I had a lot of friends growing up in Malaysia, where I went to middle school, who had parents who were entrepreneurs. And they always were the ones who had the nicer cars and the hills and the homes. And they didn't have sexy businesses. One had a, like a carton drink company and one had a chicken farm. And I was like, wow, but they're rich. <laughs> so it sounds pretty good to me. So I always thought I wanted to be a businessman, but I didn't know exactly what type of business to do. And so when I got to college, I was pretty frugal. I decided to, to go to the College of William & Mary because at the time, it cost $2,800 a year in tuition versus about $22,000 for private school. 
I said, well, if I could graduate with a $30,000 a year job, I would be happy. And if I graduated with no job or a minimum wage job, at least I knew I could pay back my parents because I had worked at McDonald's for $4 an hour. So that was my mindset going forward. But instead, I studied economics and my father in high school, he showed me the stock tickers at the back of a newspaper. And he's like, oh, this is what stock investing is. And that really whetted my appetite. So I decided to try to work in finance. And that's what happened. I got really lucky there. So as someone who enters high finance, I know you worked at, remind me of the two places, I'm totally blinking. I was a Credit Suisse and somewhere else. So Goldman Sachs for the first couple of years, and then Credit Suisse for another 11 years. Okay. So two high caliber finance jobs. As you're working in those jobs, I'm assuming you're getting these pay raises, bonuses, all the good stuff that comes in corporate finance. What did your personal finance situation look like? Like, Were you being intentionally frugal? Had you already been kind of exposed to this idea of financial independence and financial freedom? Or what did it look like on the expenses side? So my first job in 1999, I thought I had won the lottery joining Goldman Sachs in Manhattan. But the pay was $40,000 base pay. And even at that time, I was thinking to myself, wait, that's it? Because I couldn't rent an apartment, apartment in Manhattan on 40000 because you needed to earn 40 times the average monthly rent. So I found a studio. It was like $1,800 or $1,900 a month, which was relatively affordable then. And I split it with my high school buddy. So we lived in a studio, but two of us dudes, and we put up like this partition wall. And the first day of work was 5.30 in the morning, and it was dark. And I was thinking to myself, man, this sucks. But you know, I was like, okay, I got to show up. And it was 5.30 a.m. And then I remember having to stay until 7 p.m. because that's when my bosses stayed. So that was a long day, right? 13 and a half hours. And then so after the first month, I realized, oh my gosh, there's no way I can last in this high pressure, stressful environment for 30, 40 years like my parents did. It was just too hard. So from the very first month, I said, I need an exit. I need some options. So I decided to save half of my paycheck. So one paycheck, and there's two paychecks a month, and then as much of my bonus as possible. That first day, you know, you said, you see that it's like a 13 hour day, you're getting up, it's dark, you're yeah. getting home, it's dark. Like that's a tough life to think about. But you did work in high finance for, for over a decade. I know a lot of times people who are in those kind of jobs figure out pretty quickly, like they're looking around, they see people that, yeah, they're making good money, but they're not happy. Mm-hmm. They're getting driven into the yeah. ground. What allowed you to be able to make it as long as you did in a career like that? I joined Goldman in 1999, and that was the year Goldman Sachs went public. Before that, it was a private company. It was the last remaining bulge bracket private company. And so I interviewed with them in 1998. I went through, it was like seven months, six rounds, 55 interviews. It was crazy. And then so when I finally joined, all the partners and many of the vice presidents made millions, if not tens of millions of dollars. And so I could see my future right then and there if I were to last. So I said, okay. Making that kind of money would be nice, but at the same time, they didn't seem much happier. The senior partner in the international equities department went through a divorce. I actually bumped into him in, I think, Montreal, and he was with another woman. It was like, oh, hey, how's it going, David? You know, it was like totally random. So I was thinking to myself, okay, yes, it would be nice to have some money, a lot of money, but at the same time, I didn't see them as happier. I saw the perspective right then and there because I worked with them for 12 to 14 hours every single day. 
And so I told myself, I'm going to try to make it by 40. If I can work 18 years and I crunch some numbers, I could accumulate a certain amount of money to give me the options to be free. But at the end of the day, I left after two years because we're going through retrenchments because of the dot-com bubble burst, came to San Francisco, worked 11 years, and I figured out my way out in 2012 at the age of 34, and that was to negotiate a severance. To negotiate a severance to keep all my deferred cash and stock compensation, as well as this private investment management forced us to make in 2010. Because if I had quit, then I would have lost literally hundreds of thousands of dollars left on the table. And so that's the golden handcuffs I couldn't leave behind. And so rewinding three years is when you first started Financial Samurai. You're definitely an OG in the personal finance space. I even read that Mr. Money Mustache kind of got a launch on your platform doing a guest post on Financial Samurai in the early days, (laughs) which is just crazy because a lot of people think of him as a pioneer of the fire movement. What prompted the start of Financial Samurai? Like what you gave you, I guess the confidence and the wherewithal and like, I'm going to start this platform and reach millions of readers. That's cool. You recognize that because yeah, I started in 2009 and I feel I helped kickstart the modern day financial independence movement, but I don't think anybody really gives me any credit. And I think part (laughs) of that reason why is because I've just kept low key and just, you know, I haven't been doing interviews or whatever. I'm just kind of doing my own thing and just living the life the way I want to live. But I actually started thinking about Financial Samurai in 2005 or 2006 because I'd gone to business school part-time from 2003 to 2006. And I was still dreaming of becoming an entrepreneur one day, doing something. And I was like, well, this sounds pretty good to me. I like to write. I work in finance. Let's do it. But in 2006, when I graduated, I said, well, let's do it in the sense that we got to start working hard for the company that helped pay for 85% of your tuition. I was just like, okay, let's just focus on my job. But then once the financial crisis came, I was like, no more excuses. I need a backup plan. So let me just launch. I looked around. There were actually most people didn't have a finance background. So I was like, okay, let me fill that hole. And so I was like, I I need a backup plan and I need something to do because I might get laid off tomorrow because this is like seven rounds of layoffs a year for the past two years. And writing financial content is obviously a little different than if you're trying to help people understand how to cook a recipe or how to do a workout. Like there's a little higher level of implications there. And I don't think I've ever asked anybody this question, but with somebody like you that has such a a large platform, is there any kind of like responsibility or weight that you take with that when you're writing an article saying, you know what, I actually think that you should be 100% equities and no Mm. bonds or something like that, that People are going to read and they're going to they trust you because you have such a voice and they go out yeah. and they implement these strategies. Like, do you feel a responsibility for the outcomes that people are going to have? Well, I do believe money is too important to be left up to pontification. So that's why everything I write is based on firsthand experience. Before I started Financial Samurai, I noticed, let's say someone would write about the importance of investing in real estate, but they had never owned real estate. So I wanted to rectify that situation and just write based on experience, because as the the older I've gotten, the more I realize how valuable experience is. And that's one of the reasons why I wrote Buy This, Not That is because there's a great saying that says, if I knew then what I know now, things would be different. Things would be better, right? And so I'm trying to implement all the experiences I have and my knowledge about finance into tackling various topics. So in terms of the weight of responsibility, I do feel the weight of responsibility to get things right. 
if you look at my articles, they are pretty detail oriented. I try to have this logic. I'm not didactic in the sense that I say, you got to follow this way or else. I'm very open-minded to try to bring in different perspectives. And that's the great thing about having a platform is you get to hear people's perspectives and experiences that often you don't hear about or know about because we all have blind spots. And so I'm trying to bring other people's perspectives and then synthesize them and then make a cogent argument. And then it's up to the reader to say, okay, that makes sense. I'm going to go that route. Or you know what? That doesn't make sense. And here's why. And I think that's a part of the fun is to have this great discussion. Absolutely. Yeah. Not being dogmatic about any one decision, giving people, here's option one, here's option two, whatever one might work best for your situation, run with that one. I'm curious though, Sam, from a motivation standpoint, so you have this blog, Financial Samurai from 2009, you're still running it today. You have over 2,500 articles. I think I read 90 million people have visited the site, like 200,000 comments. What prompted you to want to write a book? Like you've already written <laughs> God knows how many words. I don't even have a guess. And now you go and tackle, you know, this beast, which is a book. I know it's just like such an arduous writing process, editing process, getting it out there. Yeah. What prompted everything? So I think the first prompt was uh, rejection and failure back in 2000 and I think 11 or 12. I tried to get a literary agent and I sent out probably 24 emails, manuscripts, and I got nothing, either crickets or just no thank you. And so I later found out recently that only supposedly like one to 3% of aspiring authors get literary agents and less than 50% of literary agents get book deals for their clients. So first it started with rejection. So I said, okay, I tried, screw that. I'm going to self-publish anyway. So I self-published How to Engineer Your Layoff. And it's about severance negotiations back in 2012. So I went through the self-publishing. It was a good experience, registered with the Library of Congress, helped a lot of people and it's fifth edition today. And then at the end of 2019, I was approached by an editor at Portfolio Penguin. And so Penguin Random House is the largest publisher and Portfolio is one of the most reputable business imprints in the world. And I thought to myself, hmm, that would be nice, but I don't want to write a book. <laughs> it's like <laughs> too much work. I just don't want to write a book. And then what happened was COVID happened, right? Lockdowns happened starting in March 18, 2020. And I told myself, you know what? If I don't write this book, I'm going to regret not having tried, right? Because never fail due to a lack of effort because effort requires no skill. And also, I didn't know how long the lockdowns would last. I was hoping, you know, less than six months, but obviously the pandemic continues to, to this day. And I wanted to make good out of a bad situation. I wanted to be able to look back 10, 20, 30 years from now and say, when someone asks, how was the pandemic? I'll say it sucked, but I actually was able to write a book to help people achieve financial freedom sooner. And so I just got on it and I decided to write 6 a.m. to 8 a.m., 8.30 a.m. every single morning and just get on and try to fill this hole of actually writing a good book that goes deep into many topics that is unique. One thing that's interesting to me, Sam, is, is just that, like, just called you Sam, you know, you're on here, you're not behind the mask as it would be, you know, the financial mm. samurai mask. And, and you wrote an article about like stealth wealth. And it just made me think like, how has that been important to you in, in your journey? And not only your like financial journey, but the journey with the website being a little bit more private, like why has that been so important to you? And realistically, you know, with the audience that you have, like it would be so easy to monetize and it would be so easy to just put yourself out mm. there more 
and to make an entire life out of just that brand. We'll be right back after this. Overwhelmed by all the hats you wear in life? Listen in as Eric Fisher talks with productivity experts as they share how they implement practical productivity strategies in their personal and professional lives, exploring all aspects of productivity and its true end goal, living a meaningful life, which is something we focus a ton on on the FI Show. For more than a decade, Eric Fisher has sat down with productivity experts, authors, and creatives as they share their insights on how to implement productivity strategies in both your professional and personal life. The goal? To help you gain perspective, practical knowledge, and productivity insights for living a whole life that goes beyond the to-do list. Check out the incredibly engaging conversations with Eric and his guests every week wherever you listen to podcasts. Now back to the show. You know, I've never had the desire to be famous or just have that attention. I don't have Instagram or anything, and I try to minimize my social media. I'm just kind of busy living my life, and I'm really busy because I have two kids, two and a half and five and a half, and they take up a lot of energy and time. Also, you know, it's true, I have these investments that provide passive income so that I can do what I want so that I don't have to spend as much time monetizing. And I have been around famous people, rich and famous people, and I don't know if that's the life that I want. I have a friend who played basketball for the Golden State Warriors, and the Warriors won the NBA championship three times. And we were just chilling at a corner bistro in Oakland, California. We had a two-hour lunch, and I swear in that two hours, five people came up to us, asked for his autograph, gave everything from, told them stories about how their kids played basketball to providing weed services for free to bodyguard services. And I was thinking to myself, I mean, that's pretty cool that you're so admired, but I don't know if that's the life that I want. And the other thing I thought was really fun and challenging was to be able to write content based on the quality of my writing alone. You know, think about that. There's no marketing. There's no me getting on TV or YouTube or podcasts really and just saying, you know, this is me, check it out. And here's my background. I thought it would be cool. And it's like life on hard mode to try to write something good enough that would resonate with people without having to see me as a person. And I thought that was a great challenge. But one of the reasons why I wanted to come out was because I wanted to diversify the space and to be able to speak up for Asian people. There's been a lot of news stories about Asian hate since 2020. And as a father now, I want my kids to be proud and to also have see people, to see people who look like themselves in the media and doing the things that they might want to do one day. That's awesome, man. Well, even though you say you're not on Instagram, you're not, you know, just posting left and right, you are creating so much helpful content for people out there. So it's not like you're just, you know, accumulating millions of dollars worth of real estate and, you know, just raking it in and not telling a soul because you could do that too. You could be completely anonymous, like zero content out into the internet, not helping anyone, just kind of living off whatever dividends you're creating for yourself, whether that's through real estate Mm -hmm. or business. But you chose to kind of go the the altruistic route of helping other people, showing other people what it's really like, like you said, using firsthand experience to tell people how to make decisions. So has that always kind of been a passion of yours? Like from the very beginning, you're like, I am going to document this entire journey. I'm going to kind of, I'm going to spill all the financial beans, whatever kind of comes into my life. I want other people to you know, know how it really is. Well, I think I started Financial Samurai partly due to fear. I think fear is one of the key ingredients for achieving financial independence. You know, like I didn't want to mess up college too bad because I feared disappointing my parents. I didn't want to be homeless or jobless for too long, which is part of the reason why 
I started Financial Samurai. So I really understood emotion of fear and just kind of getting kicked to the curb. Society doesn't want you, your job, you don't have a job. And it's like a really emotional process. So I found that writing the good and the bad was very cathartic for the soul. And I found that I was able to connect with other people who were going through these traumas or uncertainties or anxieties. And collectively, when you hear from other people going through what you're going through, you feel better about yourself. And you also feel like, hey, you can help them out and share with them what to look for. Because there are so many blind spots. There's so many landmines out there. You just don't know. And I just think it's wonderful to share, but also wonderful to learn from other people. One of your articles that I came across talked about like times not to retire early. And the one that stuck out to me was the one where it talked about being accustomed to lying to yourself. And a couple of the ones you wrote were like, I don't have a problem drawing 4% or more, or I don't think I'm going to have big medical expenses, or I'm okay living extremely frugally. I'm just curious as someone who has you know reached that point, been able to retire early, kind of were there any things you found after pulling the trigger where you're like, maybe I was overselling myself a little bit, or do you feel like you had such a bulletproof plan and you kind of overplanned that, mm. that you never found yourself in that position? Well, I mean, I don't know what I don't know. So that's the fun part of chronicling <laughs> things. And so one of the negatives of fake retirement, I call it fake retirement now. I'm trying to really embrace the <laughs> criticism. Writing doesn't write itself, right? The, the recordings of the podcast don't record themselves. One of the interesting and most jolting things is the loss of identity and the loss of being someone supposedly important in society because you had a job that people called you and emailed you about for help. And so once I left the finance industry, I didn't have any clients anymore. I just had me and myself and I just try to figure things out. Luckily, I did the one foot out and one foot in approach where my wife, who's three years younger than me, continued to work for two and a half years before she also negotiated severance in 2015 to join me. Things don't always go according to plan. And so the downside was, man, am I an idiot for leaving so much money at such a young age? Now that I, in retrospect, I think about I'm 45 now, I think I should have probably just gutted it out until 40. Maybe it would have made more money and I would have had more security. Maybe I would have had children sooner because I wasn't afraid of financial responsibility. I think maybe that's probably the biggest thing. I feel really lucky because we've been in a bull market. When I left in 2012, it was kind of like the start of everything taking off. And so when you leave your day job behind then, it's much easier to ride that wave versus if you leave at the top of the market and then everything goes down for three, four years, then you're like, oh, okay, maybe I made a really big mistake. So I feel very fortunate. So during this time, you're building these passive income streams. I know you're making money from real estate. You're making money from financial samurai. I think I read somewhere you're making around $300,000 per year in passive income. Is that correct? That's about right. So a phrase that I saw you use, and I think this is going to be important for listeners to conceptualize and understand, is surviving the J-curve. Because I'm sure that's not how it started out, Sam. You didn't just buy this awesome business or buy this hotel and all of a sudden you're making $300,000 a year in passive income. It's a slow and arduous journey. And you know it takes a lot yeah. of grit. It takes a lot of seeing it through. So could you just, I guess, one, explain where your passive income sources are coming from nowadays? And two, what you mean by that phrase, surviving the J-curve? So I had a goal of generating enough passive income to cover my basic living expenses. And that's my definition of financial independence, having enough passive income to cover basic living expenses. And you can go higher or lower. 
that becomes just a whole subjective matter. So in 2012, it was about $80,000. And so when my wife left in 2015, I said, well, might as well believe in equality and double that to about 150,000. And so that was kind of the idea to plow any money I made online back into passive income generating investments. And then once our kid, our son was born in 2017, I said, well, you know, higher healthcare insurance, preschool costs $2,500 a month after taxes here in San Francisco, another 50,000. So we're at 200,000. And oh, our daughter was born in end of 2019. Let's add on another 50,000. So we got 250,000. So in other words, don't expect your spending and your desires and your needs for income to stay static once you leave your day job behind. It's always going to be changing. You just never really know. I mean, I didn't even know that we were going to have children, really. I mean, because we thought about it. We we're like, oh, I don't know. And then we tried for a couple of years, didn't work. But then we were blessed with a son in 2017. So right now, our construction is 50% of our passive income comes from real estate. 30% comes from dividend stocks or dividends from stocks. I would say about 5% come from risk-free 10% comes from double A municipal bonds, so tax-free from state and federal income. And then the rest is private investments in venture capital, venture debt. And so that's our construction. And I don't want to have more than 50% of one asset class as part of my net worth, but that 50% is, is real estate. But the thing is, if I had 70% in real estate, I'd probably be okay because I like real estate given it's dependable, it provides utility, shelter. And the income is pretty sticky. And you just mentioned that you also like you do some investment with like venture capital, private investing. What does that look like? And is that something that a normal person could get into? Or is it something where you have to reach kind of like a certain point before those doors open? I think most private investments you need to be accredited investor. So I think it's like 250000 income or a million dollar net worth, excluding your primary residence. So I don't recommend angel investing or private equity investing because we have no edge versus the big dogs who have been in it for decades, who have all the connections. We're left um, investing in the scraps. So I recommend if you want to do venture capital or venture debt to invest in one of the top venture debt or venture capital funds. Because these folks really, I mean, it's so obvious because I've met all of them. They all know each other. They V for the same deals. They get the best. It's very competitive. They have the reputation and the capital. Yes, you're going to have to pay probably 2% and 2% of assets under management and 20% of the profits. But that's the price to pay for admission to diversify and to potentially earn a higher rate of return through a different asset class. So I just want to hop back to the J curve because I really want to hear your answer oh, about this, Sam. <laughs> I know you gave us an awesome answer and I didn't want to poke it again, but I think the J curve concept is so important. And I'm sure it was something that you faced with Financial Samurai, with your real estate investing journey, with, I mean, with anything that is difficult, it takes a long time. It takes a lot of grit. It takes a lot of grinding out. You don't see results right away. So I'd love if you could talk about that for a second. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the J curve. You put your capital in, you don't get a return for a while. For example, here in San Francisco, the cap rates are 2 to 4%. So it's very low in the real estate world. So you can't make a cash flow positive investment on your rental property for two to three years usually. Whereas if you go to the Midwest, Sunbelt, you can often, after putting 20% down, get an immediate positive cash flow return on your investments. 
And so in that respect, that J curve is you got to be cash flow negative for two to three years and hope your property appreciates in value enough and rents appreciate enough. So after the three years, after you're down in the negative, you're going positive. So that's the J shape. In terms of financial samurai, I mean, it's so, there's not really a J curve because the cost to start a site, I mean, back then in 2009, I paid someone $500 on Craigslist to start my site because I didn't, I didn't know what I was doing, right? <laughs> and then I think I was paying another $250 to design some emblem, my emblem, my original emblem. But that was really key because I didn't want to spend money. I didn't know what to do, but paying someone who knows what they're doing to help you start, I think that's more than 50% of the battle. And then once you start, you figure things out on your own. You learn the basics, you tweak things. And yeah, Financial Samurai, it was ignored. People were like, who are you? You just get ignored for the first year. But if you show up, you keep on showing up every single week, comment on the other people's sites, you promote other people's stuff. Sooner or later, someone will you know, take notice. And then it just started continuing to go up after about the first year. So I'll do a little bit of a step back myself. I know we talked about feeling comfortable retiring, but then also talking about how your expenses, like what you imagine your expenses would be and how much passive income you would need, continue to change and multiply it actually several times. So for somebody who's trying to plan that, it feels like there's definitely a balance there. Like you want to be able to retire early. You don't want to overstuff the bag and work for too long, but then you also need to understand that things could change going forward. So with someone with your experience, do you have any advice for people as they try to thread that needle between not just continuing to work for no reason, but also being prepared for unknowns? Well, I think it's maybe helpful to look at the end in mind. So the median life expectancy for Americans is about 78 to 82, male or female. So let's just say it's 80. And so your life is half over by 40. And also, you don't want to look back on your life with regret, not having tried your best to do something new or to do something that's meaningful and purposeful with your life. So I believe the best age to retire early from something that you don't really love, you can go on to do something else, is between the ages of 42 to 45. Because you spent 20 years post high school or college doing the work, hopefully you're saving at least 20% or greater of your after-tax income and you're maxing out your tax advantage accounts. And after 20 years, if you do the math and it's all in the book, buy this, not that, or you can just go to a compound calculator, you'll find that you should be able to amass a decent amount of money after 20 to 23 years to do something new that might not pay as well, but you're really, really passionate about. So that's the framework I look at because money, there's always another dollar to make, but the time is what's the deciding factor where you need to figure out when to step off. So if you're fortunate enough to listen to this podcast as a teenager or in your 20s, you can say, okay, you got 20 years. Now, obviously, if you're 40 years old already and you only have two to five years left, until you reach that optimal age that I believe is time to take a leap of faith. If you want, you're going to have to step up that savings, step up that investing, and step up those side hustle income. But yeah, you're right. You don't want to just be miserable for so long. But I think it's worth being miserable for maybe 20 years. And so 20 years, it's not all misery, right? Like I worked in finance for 13 years. There was 60 to 70 hour weeks. It wasn't all miserable. I had fun. I went out. I met new smart people. It was pretty cool. But obviously, it was tougher than a 40-hour-a-week day job where you can just you know, clock it in. But I was able to work and compress that time so I could escape sooner so I'm able to benefit on the back end. And so you've got to decide what you really want. 
So to piggyback off of Justin's question a bit, I know something you talk about in your book, By This, Not That, is whether you should job hop or kind of just stay at one company for a prolonged period of time. Like in, in this example, you get into a company and you stay and grind up for 20 years. Even Justin, you as an example, has benefited immensely from job hopping, like just taking better offers and weighing those offers against each company. So Sam, I was hoping you could weigh in because I know a lot of our audience members are probably faced with this dilemma and aren't quite sure how to navigate it. So I believe, unfortunately, company loyalty is dead because in any downturn, the company will lay people off to try to save their bottom line. So I think the optimal amount of years you should work at a company is between three to five years. You know, first year, you know, you're getting to know people, you're building your reputation, and then you can do really good stuff over the next two to five years or two to four years. And then if you see a better opportunity, you should go take it because every single year that you stay at a company, it's your discount to market rate, market rate salary grows just a little bit. And so after about five years, your discount to market rate, I think, is about 30% or more because it's almost kind of like inflation. You're not going to keep pace with your job value inflation in the market because your company is not going to pay you that. Why would they, right? The longer you stay, the greater the discount, the more they save. So if you want to accelerate your path to financial independence, you should job hop every three to five years. And five years is a very respectable time to stay at any one firm. If you're job hopping every one, two years, it's really dangerous because any manager who looks at a resume of you know seven places in 10 years is going to pause and be like, yeah, I don't want to spend six months training you, you know, pursuing you, and then you're going to leave in six to one year, right? So I think that ideal balance is three to five years. And we've obviously been sitting here kind of peppering you with questions, getting a lot of and kind of teasing out some rules of thumb from you. I'm curious as somebody who's written so much content, I assume you probably consume a good bit of content as well. Are there any like rules of thumb or, or things you see other people in the personal finance space putting out there that kind of get under your skin a little bit or you just can't yeah. agree with? Nothing really gets under my skin. It's like, it's pretty cool that people just share their stuff. I just find it really funny when people get all hot and bothered uh, and flustered if I say something and I share my opinion, even though it's backed with a lot of thoughtfulness. I think one of the controversial things in the personal finance space is regarding the safe withdrawal rate. I find it is really cool and interesting that there are retirement researchers who have great incomes and nice pensions who talk and write about retirement when they have no idea what it's really like to not have a day job anymore. And so you can pontificate all you want, but I say until you're in that fire and you don't have that steady income stream, it's really hard to know. And so the 4% rule is something that was created in the 1990s. And in the 1990s, the risk-free rate of return, which is the 10-year bond yield, was between 5 to 6%. So in other words, you can get a risk-free return by just buying a 10-year treasury bond and earning 5 to 6%. So obviously, you could withdraw from your portfolio at a 4% rate of return and be okay. I mean, it's like obvious, right? But I don't know if anybody realizes that it's obvious. And so I really wanted to challenge that notion because 1990s was a very long time ago. And so just like you're not writing handwritten letters to your buddies, you shouldn't be following a rule that was created 30 plus years ago, right? And so I talk about a financial samurai safe withdrawal rate, and that is to take 80% of the 10-year bond yield, whatever it is at the time. So right now, the 10-year bond yield is at 3%. So the safe withdrawal rate I recommend for someone who's just leaving their job for the first several years 
would be 3% times 80%. That's 2.4%. And some people just go apoplectic and say, oh my God, that's so low. That's ridiculous. How can you do that? You know, you're going to have to like save so much for your net worth. And my point is this, look, when you finally leave your job, things might not be what you expect, how you feel and your certainty of your modeling in retirement without a paycheck is probably going to be very different. So be conservative in the first couple of years in your safe withdrawal rate. Maybe try to find supplemental retirement income and maybe try to accumulate a bigger net worth because during those first couple of years, it can be very traumatizing. It can be very, you can question yourself a lot. And this rule, this new rule, I think will help you. So I do want to ask about the title of your book, Sam, very specifically, buy this, not that. What should I buy and what shouldn't I be buying if financial independence is the goal here? <laughs> well, the book is 110,000 words long. So <laughs> answering that question would take a very, very long time. But I can summarize it for you in the sense that every single choice is an opportunity cost for not making that other choice. And over the past 13 plus years, I've come across a lot of people who have decision paralysis. And so analysis paralysis, decision paralysis. So they don't end up making any choice and then they let their lives pass them by. And I don't want people to feel regret. And so the concept behind Buy This, Not That, the theme behind Buy This, Not That is to help people think in probabilities, not absolutes. So in other words, don't feel like you need 100% certainty before making a decision. Because if you do, you're going to miss out on so many opportunities. Starting your website, starting your podcast, going for that startup job, asking that girl or boy out, whatever it is. Don't think in absolutes. And I have the 70-30 decision-making framework, which states that if you believe with 70% certainty that you're going to make the right choice, go with it with conviction, but also with humility, knowing that 30% of the time you're going to get it wrong. But that's okay unless it's something catastrophic because you're going to be able to bounce back, learn from your mistakes, and make better decisions going forward. And Sam, you've spent a lot of time like teaching the world of personal finance. And one thing that me and Cody could never speak to is, is like having children. You mentioned, you know, you, you had children, you weren't sure you're going to ha going to have children. When yeah. you think about like, you have such an analytical way of looking at these problems and presenting them, obviously teaching kids is just so different. Do you think about ways in which you can instill some of these kind of financial cornerstones into your children's life and just what that, what that experience yeah. has been like? I think what's really important is not just talking about things, not jibber jabbering, but actually getting into the weeds literally and doing the work, showing your children that you are working. So one of our rental properties is in walking distance from our home. So what we do, I take my son and we go literally pull the weeds because it's part of the lease that our tenant is supposed to pull the weeds, but he doesn't do it. So we go <laughs> and do it. And then I explain to him, look, you know, it's really important to be honorable and follow the agreement. And this is what happens. This is life as it is. And you can make excuses or complain, or we can go pull the weeds and we can go do it together and make some money. So really showing your children the things that you want them to do is super important. And I think part of the benefit of work from home is that you can show your children more often what you're doing. Oh, and there's this other thing. Cody, you don't have kids, right? Neither of us do. Nope, not yet. Okay, <laughs> you don't have kids. Okay. So here's another thing that's really important. So I didn't know whether I wanted to have kids at either. I wanted to focus on making money, being financially independent, just doing what I want. And then after I started having kids, I realized, wow, 
it's harder to have kids for some people than they might think. It's not just one time and you succeed, right? The average amount of attempts it takes to have a kid for just a normal fertile couple is about seven times. So you got to plan that in then plus nine months of pregnancy, right? But what I realized after having kids is that you will love your kids more than anything in the world. There's nothing that comes close. Therefore, if you're thinking about having kids or if you want kids, because not everybody wants kids and that's fine. But I'm saying if you're thinking or if you want kids, it's probably better to have kids sooner because you want to have the thing that's most precious in your life be a greater part of your life. Because on the back end, you're going to die, right? So you want them to be a larger percentage of your lifetime as possible. Keeping it real. <laughs> Love it. <Yeah. laughs> Something I saw you write about was kind of legacy, whether you should kind of keep the bank of mom and dad open for your kids. What are your thoughts around that? Like, are you going to gift these rental properties, some of these angel investments down to your kids? Or are you going to, are you wanted to die with zero people or are you somewhere in between? Well, I think dying with zero is a good concept. If we can all have a net worth of 250 million or greater, like Bill does with die with zero, we can all die with zero because <laughs> yeah. it's hard to spend $250 million. <laughs> so that's a position of privilege and luxury that I think people need to recognize. It's easy to say money doesn't matter if you have a lot of money. Okay. But in terms of what to do with the assets, it's a tough question that we're going to go through. And we plan to educate our children as much as possible about the value of money and the importance of hard work. Do the work because hopefully by the time they're 18 or 20, they will appreciate the money and they're not going to spend it and splurge it and take things for granted. I think it's important anybody to set up revocable living trusts because if you die and with just a will and no trust, you go to probate court, which is more expensive and it takes longer and it's public. So that's not a great thing. So revocable living trust is important. If you have the luxury to make lots and lots of money, it's interesting because the estate tax threshold right now is 12.06 million per person, which is a top 1% net worth. But if you have the luxury to accumulate way more than that, I would say it makes more sense to give that money away above the estate tax threshold. And so if you're trying to think about limits on how much to give, the estate tax threshold is probably maybe the max you should probably give, you know, and that's still a ton of money. And then it's up to us to think about when to give. So it's probably more efficient to give our children money and help them while we're still living, right? Because if we're dead, most of us die when our kids, if we have kids when we're, let's say, 80 and they're 50. It's not really beneficial to help someone when they're 50, but it's more beneficial to help them when they're in their 20s and 30s, when they're family formation, purchasing a home perhaps. So it's a tough question, but I think I will probably try to help them with their education and maybe with a down payment as a loan. And then we set up these terms. And if by the time they pay everything off, it's going to be a question of, well, oh, you know what? Don't worry about it. You don't have to pay me back because you're a good kid and you know you're doing what's right. Or I'll be like, well, actually, you need to keep on paying me that interest, high interest rate loan. <laughs> it all depends. <laughs> strong arm, strong arm. I guess what leads to knowing how much you would have left in the first place is kind of how you're managing that spending now. So as someone who's reached the levels that you've reached, what does kind of spending look like now? Like, have you really unleashed the pocketbook and, and splurging a lot more on things? Or what has that transition yeah. been like over your life? So it's interesting. So I made a promise to myself at the age of 45, I would start decumulating. And so I'm 45 the summer. And so I've started. And it's been 
somewhat difficult because you spend 20 plus years post high school or college saving, investing, being frugal, and trying to, you know, build more capital. And so it's very, I would say, disconcerting a little bit, unusual to save, to spend more money than you can save. So like everything, it's kind of like baby steps. So what I've decided to do is start spending more on food. Food is easy because we have to eat every day. So instead of like ordering a McDonald's $1 cheeseburger, maybe I'll get a gourmet $8 or $10 burger. That's like just one example. And then I started giving more, giving more money to this Pomeroy Center, which is for disabled youth and adults. 15% of the world's population has a disability from moderately severe to highly severe. And I think this is the minority group that the world should fight the most for. And so it's about baby steps and spending more money, but I also plan it out. Like, okay, how much money do I think I will end up with in 5, 10, 15, 20 years? And is that a reasonable amount of money to die with? Because if you die with millions, that's a waste of time and effort and stress that you went through, right? And so I'm trying to model it out so I spend more and more gradually so it doesn't end up where I'm just, you know, dying with all this money, which I, don't, I think I'll feel really, really stupid. So I'm trying to be more intentional with the spending and it's starting in 2022. Awesome. Well, I'm sure our listeners will be excited to follow along with your journey and read the book. And like you said, it's like basically a decision-making framework for money, for life, for everything, buy this, not that. For folks who want to read the book, get in touch, follow along, where are the best places to do that, Sam? Yeah, you can just go to financialsamurai.com forward slash BTNT for buy this, not that. Or you can go directly to anywhere that sells books. And if you want to subscribe to my free weekly newsletter where I talk about the most important things of the week and share my thoughts candidly, you can also go to financialsamurai.com forward slash news, N-E-W-S. Well, Sam, thank you so much for giving us some time today, giving the listeners some time. Love your analytical approach and just all the thought that you put into the words that you put out there. Well, thanks so much, guys. And I really encourage listeners to go for it to take your shot because the fear in your head is often way greater than the reality. Always think about what's the worst that can happen. It's probably not that bad. Just keep on taking your shot. Thank you again for taking the time to listen to another episode of The Fi Show. If you enjoyed this episode and want to support us, the best way to do that is to leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Share this with a friend. And also, don't forget, you can find 200 plus episodes and all the information you'd ever want to have about these episodes over at thefyshow.com. Also, don't forget to hit that subscribe button because that way every Wednesday you can have our latest episode delivered straight to your phone. Until next time. Hey, real quick before you go, I just want to remind you that I have made my personal like budget and net worth tracking spreadsheet available, the very same one that I use to track my net worth from $38,000 to over $1.2 million available for free on our website at thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet. So you can go download that today. That's thefyshow.com slash spreadsheet.